Welcome to With That Being Said, a podcast on life, love, and everything in between. I'm so glad you've decided to join the conversation. Hi, I'm Esther Boykin. And I'm Erica Turner. With that being said, who wants to be happy? (laughs) Not me. I don't want to be happy. Happiness is for losers. Right. Uh, I'm really, I'm excited for today's guest. I think I say that every single episode, but I'm always, but you know. But you mean it. I do I know that you mean it. I don't know that other people know that you mean it, but I do. I do. They all make me happy. I mean, if, after all, if I'm not excited about them, why are they on the show? (laughs) Right. (laughs) We should have somebody on here that we hate. That would be fun. That would be great. (laughs) I'm so not excited to have our next guest. (laughs) Right. This person is awful. Right. (laughs) No, but I think it's going to be a great conversation today about something I feel like we talk about and we don't talk about, which is happiness. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of gotten like, I don't know, maybe it's always been true. It's almost like people are ashamed or think they shouldn't aspire to happiness, that happiness is a sort of fruitless or uh, superficial goal. Like that, that somehow wanting to be happy is a superficial goal. Yeah, like somehow you need to want deeper things, which I think the meaningful things in life are really what make us happy, right? Well, one would hope. I would think so. Or fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of weird how we've gotten sort of away from, and not that, I guess, I think the move has been that you don't want happiness to be your only goal. I mean, you don't want to sort of just be pursuing sort of a fleeing, fleeting happiness. Well, I think that's, and I, I'm excited to hear what our guest today is going to have to say about this, because I think we have sort of reduced happiness to this fulfillment of my immediate needs and not even needs really like sort of whatever I want. It's sort of following these whims that might make us happy versus maybe a more meaningful definition of this whole concept. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Happiness has been reduced to this very small space in our culture. Like it's just this, you know, surface sort of like, I had ice cream and I'm happy. Like we're all four years old again. Right. And (laughs) happiness is somewhat indulgent as opposed to really necessary in life, which I really feel like it is. It's a big part of being healthy and being productive and, and having not just a life that makes you content, but a life that is meaningful. Right. And of course, the research says that people who say they're happy, you know, who report being happy, they do well in just about every area of their life and their relationships and their work, like happy people function better. So if you yeah. need it to be functional, <laughs> you're going to be more functional if you're happy. Overall, that's true for all of us. It really is. So let's not hate on happiness. No, and definitely not with not with today's guest. <laughs> so I want to welcome today's guest, Chianti Lomax. She is a hybrid entrepreneur. She's a speaker, a coach, a consultant, and I'm very excited to have her on with us today. You can find information about her at ChiantiLomax.com and on Twitter. Chianti, how are you? I am fantastic. Esther, how are you? I'm good. Awesome, We're happy awesome. to have you on, Chianti. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. I'm really excited. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I always sort of like to kick off with uh, just tell us a little bit about you. I mean, I could kind of go on and on about all the various things that you've been doing, but uh, if you were going to sum it up, give us the 30 second uh, bio or wrap up. Who is Chianti? Okay, sure. So you kind of kick, you know, stole my, my line out a little bit. I'm a hybrid. I like to tell people I'm a hybrid entrepreneur. So, um, and I like to categorize myself as millennial just because that's my generation. And I'm a millennial speaker. I am, I call myself a happiness curator. So by day, I am a consultant, technology consultant, helping people to improve their processes, um, technologies, and kind of leadership. And then by night, I am now a happiness curator, helping millennials create happier lives through the um, research of positive psychology. I am a now, I consider myself to be a student of positive psychology because I'm newer to the field, but I'm obsessed with helping people um, look at what's right with them um, to create lives that they really want and that will allow them to flourish. I love that. I like the the happiness curator, like the sort of that concept of of just curating. I, I think about it when I think about sort of like designing interiors and things like that, sort of that collecting of things that all work together mm-hmm. for sort of an overall vision. I like that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I thought it was important because a lot of there are a lot of coaches out here. But I was like, I'm a coach, but I'm also I consider myself to be like my client's co-pilot. So we're like co-painting you know, co-creating a life that they want. And I'm just, I'm helping them, you know, I'm in the passenger side, helping them figure out what they really want to do in all areas of their lives, not just one area, not just career, not just relationships, but it's like the whole, the whole picture of well-being. So they're curating stuff. (laughs) Kianti, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about sort of like the typical client profile for your coaching and consulting services? Like who are the type of people who usually come to you for help and for happiness consulting um, in all of its glorious forms? Um, Mm -hmm. What would you say that group typically looks like? So my typical client um, would be millennial, specifically millennial women. So people who um, are are like me kind of at some point when I was just unclear about the goals that I wanted to do. Maybe it was a, a career move. Maybe I wanted to change careers. Maybe I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, people who are just um, not satisfied with one area of their lives. It could be, oh, you know, I I really want to get serious about my physical fitness, um, or I really want to find a way to be at peace um, throughout my day, or I'm really interested in creating healthier relationships. So I would say people between the ages of, I, I, I change a lot, but I would say around 25 to like 35, that's like my sweet spot. Um, people who are, are like me and who are just wanting to change um, their lives for the better and wanting to get the most out of lives and wanting to flourish um, either in their five areas of well-being. And I call it, you know, the five areas of well-being. So physical, financial, mental, uh, career, and social meaning relationships. So that's kind of who I, how I work with. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I really, I get a little caught with the millennial, just I think in part because I think sometimes it millennials get sort of a bad rap and I'm Mm -hmm. in like this interesting I'm sort of in this in an odd age because I'm really sort of like right at the end of I guess what would I be generation x like Mm -hmm. I'm right at that edge between and so 
I don't really feel like a millennial. I don't think I'm, I'm not young enough to be a millennial, but, (laughs) but it doesn't feel like this sort of huge gap versus some of my friends who are sort of like on the beginning end of being like generation X and, you know, who are, you know, born like in the early seventies or whatever it is. But Mm -hmm. I feel like you have such a positive outlook about being sort of that age, particularly right now, like that 25 to like early thirties right now. Mm -hmm. And like, that it's actually a good thing. And there are just like sort of all these really positive qualities, which I feel like sometimes we currently, at least um, in the media, we don't really sort of talk about it. We, as being a positive thing. I almost feel like mm-hmm. people use millennial as kind of a put down. Mm, really? I I feel like I read some articles recently where I just, I, I sort of find myself, like it just sort of sounds like these kind of like old stodgy parents going these millennials, they need to pull down and they need to, you know, a lot of finger wagging versus kind of really embracing. I think there's such a, there's such a freshness and openness to things that because life has been so innovative in the last few decades. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's interesting. I guess I I do kind of tend to, to look at the positive side of being a millennial. And what's interesting is a lot of, so what I'm doing right now is kind of developing a service offering around helping um, organizations with their millennials and just kind of helping them figure out this cross-generational communication, because I think a lot of it is just misconception. I think there's a misconception that millennials are all selfish and it's all about me, me, me and instant gratification. And I think if we sat down in a room to actually talk about what each generation um, understands to be true, there could be some kind of consensus, excuse me, on working together. I think that there's positives to both sides. I think there's positive to being innovative and creative and having that entrepreneurial minded mindset and that it can work in organizations specifically. And then I think with um, the older generations, um, there's a lot to be learned about the traditional way of doing things and just coming to this fusion of solutions that could, you know, make organizations thrive. And so that's kind of where I am now. And I think um, it's just a matter of sitting down to coming to the table. And that sounds so, (laughs) you know, (laughs) coming to the table, but seriously, like having dialogue around what is it like, what is the truth about millennials and what's the truth about the older generation and everyone being open to dialogue around how we can work together because that's where the magic happens is when the generations come together then that's when things get done that's when the work gets gets done from an organizational perspective yeah I mean it's interesting you know listening to you and Esther and just things that I've also read um, about sort of millennial millennial culture but it's almost like this idea that like millennials are like this foreign alien creature yeah Almost like you have to have these meetings to figure out how to talk to these millennials. And I'm like, they're your kids or like your nieces and nephews or whatever. Like it can't be that hard. They were raised by you. Um, And by they, I'm also the millennial kind of at the (laughs) kind of on the border between millennial and Gen X. So I feel, you know, very lost in the culture. Um, Yeah. But I, it feels like, you know, there's this whole, well, we got to figure out how to talk to them. But I'm wondering if it's, you know, part of it, I think, kind of dovetails with what you're doing. I do think that um, American millennial culture is more focused on, okay, this is good, but how can we make it better? 
And I think sometimes that feels like a threat to established or traditional forces that maybe, that maybe people see it as being disrespectful um, instead of saying sort of, you know, I think the millennial attitude is like, okay, you know, we've got this going and, you know, we've got this project going, it's good, but you know, how can we have a better work-life balance? How can we have, you know, the most awesome marriage ever, whatever. So I don't, I don't know if I'm articulating that well, but I feel like there is a, a challenge not to, not saying that everything is terrible, but more, there's a more sort of millennial look of how can we improve this, which may just be the youth challenge that is happening. And as every generation goes through and it just, we have new language for it. Does that make sense? Mm. What I'm saying makes sense at all. <laughs> it totally makes sense to me, Erica, but you know, <laughs> we spend a lot of time no, together. It, <laughs> I think, no, I, I think it makes sense, Erica, but I think that's just change in general. I think that when it comes to change, whoever's on the receiving end of the change, they're going to feel slighted or they're going to feel threatened by what's, what's new. So um, that part where you said, I think that happens with generations in general. <laughs> like, I think that happens with each new generation because the generation that's coming after millennials, the millennials may feel the same way after that. You know, when this new, like my nephews and nieces come up, we may feel threatened. Like, no, this is the right way. I think that's just kind of how people experience change or some people experience change. They don't want to kind of give up their way of doing things. Right. I, I agree. And I think it is in some ways there's that piece about change and kind of tying it into you know, your work around happiness. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that as, as a generation, there has been a shift in focus to things like, how do I create more happiness in my life? How can I be happier mm-hmm. relationships? Then mm-hmm. I think sometimes we perceive across the board, across lots of generations as being somewhat selfish. Like mm. this, this, there's almost this blurring between the idea of pursuing happiness versus instant gratification. And those are two really different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, back to your part about sort of that miscommunication and and sort of some misperceptions about what it really means. Um, You had a a blog post recently that I I love the quote at the beginning, you know, happiness is neither virtue nor pleasure nor this thing or that. It's simply growth. But the, you know, that concept that happiness is about growth and change not mm-hmm. really about sort of serving my momentary pleasures. Right. And, and, and another thing is, so I use happiness um, kind of like an umbrella term. And what I really mean by happiness is growth. And what I really mean by happiness is flourishing. I just like happiness because people get scared of words like positive psychology. Mm-hmm. And they're like, <laughs> flourish, what's that? So everybody gets happy, right? Because they, they understand what it means because it's an individual kind of thing as me on the definition of it, you can define it as an individual individual, but um, a huge part of happiness that I think a lot of us don't talk about is the kind of social connection piece, like um, being connected to other people, um, giving and that philanthropy, just connecting to other people in general as to your happiness. And I think there is a, just the, the myth about happiness for me um, I get from a lot of people is I'll be happy when, and then they insert X, Y, Z excuse, you know, like I just think happiness gets a bad rep because they think, well, I I can't be happy until this happens. And I really think that there, and I heard this on a recent podcast, this guy, he basically summed up how I felt about happiness. He said, you know, there is 
Um, the idea of a conditional future is, is very dangerous. And thoughts like, um, I'll be happy when X, Y, Z happens, is the quickest way to a miserable life, right? And we have to get to a place where we see happiness as growth and as small changes to help us to flourish more and not just as individuals, but, but as a community. Because I find that when people are, you know, more loving, when they love themselves, when they're doing well in themselves, they're, they're more prompt or they're more prone to be nicer to other people. <laughs> so it's like by helping yourself, you can, you know, help other people and, you know, happier people give more, happier people, um, they spend more time with friends and families. Um, so it's really, you know, connected to social connection. It's not just about a, a selfish kind of kind of self-seeking or in you know individual thing. It contributes to, you know, the overarching happiness of the community, if you will. Yeah, I totally I, I really agree with that and sort of that over we sometimes minimize the impact that small things that we do for ourselves have on the people around us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a weird cultural moment we're in where like, it's almost like you have to defend happiness, like as a thing to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which makes makes me so sad. (laughs) (laughs) When did it become a bad thing to be happy? Right. Yeah. Yeah. When did that become a bad goal? Oh, I want to be happy. Oh, that's a terrible goal. Like, (laughs) And you know what else I find? I find it's funny when I hear people say, like, I've been in situations where I've heard someone say, oh, I can't. And this is related to social media. I can't stand following this person because they're always posting positive things and you never see what's really going on. And I'm like, is that a bad thing? Like, have we become so conditioned to seeing gossip, drama and ratchetness that we can't appreciate positive images? you know, coming across our timelines. And I, and for me, happiness is a tool. Um, and it kind of cre- helps people to be more resilient. Like, I feel like it comes hand in hand with resilience for me, because just coming from a more um, background where I had to overcome a lot of obstacles, just, you know, growing up in, in a rough neighborhood, not seeing a lot of positive imagery, but um, having that idea of, oh, I, I may come from this obstacle. I may have had to overcome these things, but because of it, I'm going to be more resilient. And because, because of it, I want a happier life. I want a more positive life. Like I feel like people, (laughs) people like drama and I just don't know what the infatuation um, is with it. I don't don't know why they, they don't appreciate positivity or just more positive images um, coming across their, their timelines and across television. They just are more attracted to those things. But I actually was um, in a conversation with this lady who's a positive psychologist and she talked about us having, as humans, we have something called a negativity bias. And so we're just kind of wired to like negative things. (laughs) So maybe that's where it comes from. It's like, we're all wired to want or to, to kind of move towards the negative versus the positive. So I think that's yeah. I mean, I definitely think there's a piece in there where we just we focus on the negative, right? Because the part of it is like you know you you survive by figuring out something wrong and avoiding it or trying to make it better, um, mm-hmm. like kind of an evolutionary standpoint. 
But you're right, it doesn't really serve us well in sort of our modern day-to-day life. And it's interesting because I was reading, I think it was either in your bio, like on your website or or, or blog post. I read a bunch of things, so I'm not sure which one it came from where you had talked <laughs> okay. about where you had talked about that piece of, of, you know, that you just mentioned, sort of people posting positive things on social media. And I think it's really interesting because it seems like our reaction to what folks post on media seems to have a lot more to do with us than with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when we're happy or enthusiastic or, you know, even if we kind of had like some things go wrong, but we just are like, we're putting it out there because, you know, we're just trying to, you know, discharge the negative energy and sort of move on. Um, You know, we don't, we can see all of that and be fine with whatever is on Facebook or whatever is on Twitter. But I think when we're feeling at our core sort of, you know, down or sad or, um, you know, just not happy about what's going on with our lives, everything Mm -hmm. on social media starts to have kind of this dark edge to it. Like almost like Mm -hmm. we're seeing it through our own sort of prism of sadness Mm -hmm. (laughs) for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I, I always also think about the piece um, where, you know, joy and then kind of sadness or suffering, like there's sort of these polar opposites. And so I think sometimes we also push away all this extra happiness because it's almost like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, I don't want to be, you know, like you're, you're too happy. You're too, the idea that somebody could be that happy with everything in their life. Um, Mm -hmm. you almost want something. And I hate to say we want something terrible, but we sort of, have this internal expectation that something bad is happening. And I think, you know, to your point, Erica, about us seeing things through our own filter, if that's sort of how you're managing your life, sort of to ward off the negativity, you don't get too excited. It's hard to see somebody else really going full steam, like everything's wonderful because you just sort of like something bad's going to happen and and then you're going to fall apart and I don't want to see that. She should stop being so, you know, stop being so extra positive. You know what's interesting about that is I think another kind of misconception is that happy means perfect. Mm -hmm. I think that people think that when that being happy means everything in your life is extremely perfect. And that's just a lie. Right. I think that um, we just have to get to a place where even though even though I might have had a bad day at work. Right. It still wasn't the worst day of my life. I think. Yeah, I think that we think it's it's like a polar opposite. I'm either very, very happy or very, very sad. And I think that we just have to give ourselves permission to be human. And a part of being happy for me and my definition of happiness is just allowing, allowing myself to be human and allowing myself to, to experience the range of emotions that come with being human. And, and I'm going to have good days. Like I don't wake up you know, raining, uh, beaming sunshine <laughs> in the morning, it's a very intentional thing, you know? So I, I create these habits that allow me to experience um, life in a, in a more positive lens, even if I'm having a, a so-called bad moment. Um, because I know that this is only a moment and this isn't a defining, just a defining time for me. It's just a moment and not like a long, long period of time. And I think that when we get to a place where we just allow ourselves to 
human, but at the same time, don't get stuck in whatever that bad feeling is. We won't be so, I guess, mad at people that are being happy. It's like, it's, it's okay. You know, happy isn't being perfect. Happy is just saying, you know what? Today's not a good day, but you know, I, I can get through it or I, can, I have tools that I can use to, to make myself feel better later. And, you know, tomorrow might be a better day. You know, it's just being able to take each moment, being able to take each emotion, um, feeling it, saying it's okay, having that self-compassion piece and then moving forward and not getting stuck in it. So happiness for me doesn't mean a perfect life. It just means having a more resilient life, I would say, I guess. I like that. All right. Yeah. You've yeah. got a really cute little graph about, you know, you just said about, mentioned being intentional and you have a cute little graph on your site that's basically like, oh you know, no, <laughs> happiness is, <laughs> it's cute, but it's like, you know, it's 40% intentional activity, like it sort of contributes to your general sense of happiness. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what would be you know, two or three of the things that you would say that either you personally do or just that, you know, you would encourage like a client or someone else to start to be intentional about doing in their life that would mm -hmm. facilitate just sort of that overarching sense of happiness, just generally a greater sense of happiness. Sure, sure. So one thing that I, I do personally and that I encourage my clients to do is um, just getting to the habit, getting into the habit of gratitude. Um, so I, I journal, I've been journaling for the past five years. And one of the things that I journal about is just, is being thankful for certain things in my life and not like these huge things like, Oh my, you know, I, I'm thankful I'm making X amount of dollars. It's just the little stuff like, Oh, I, I woke up this morning with breath in my body, you know, just three things expressing gratitude every single day and making habit for me personally, I've seen it just help to, to just zone in my moods every single day. So, and when I started doing more gratitude, when I started making it a habit, I started looking for more things to be grateful for. So it was kind of like, oh, well, let me start looking for things to be grateful for because I know I got to put it in my journal. So it's like, once you start creating this habit of gratitude, it automatically helps you to look for more things to be grateful for. Um, and then it's been, I think there's like, all this research behind it that talks about um, gratitude being one of the most um, powerful interventions for helping people to create happier lives. Um, just by writing every single day, two or three things, the number varies, right? I say three things, some people say five things, but getting to the habit of writing down what you're thankful for every single day um, kind of sets your mind in the right direction and helps you to live a more thankful life and helps you to, to intent. Like it, it's like tricking your mind to look for things to be grateful for helps you to look at more life, more look at life, excuse me, in a more positive way. So um, that's one thing. Another thing I do is I exercise and, you know, some people are like, well, I don't, you know, I'm not going to do that, but it's really not about like, you know, trying to do boot camp every day, <laughs> which is what I do. <laughs> But like just getting that physical activity, I feel like it helps you to alleviate a lot of the stress. So maybe it's walking for some people. Maybe it's running for some people. Um, maybe it's just, you know, if you work a nine to five, getting up from your desk um, once, you know, every 60 minutes to take a walk to the copy machine. So just getting movement in your body 
just helps to alleviate some of that stress and anxiety and a lot of those things that kind of bog us down through the day. I feel like a combination of like gratitude and physical activity, it helps me to do the heavy lifting and just, you know, talking with clients, even friends, you know, they've experienced just just more relief, I would say, from like the heavy lifting they have to do throughout the week through those two things. I think both of those are really great ideas. They're things I suggest all the time. They're also things that I personally yeah. have a hard time doing, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but they really do. But they really do work. They definitely do. Yeah, but, yeah. And gratitude doesn't work for some people. So maybe it's you know um, affirmations. So some people are really big in affirmations. And so they wake up and say positive things about themselves. And it kind of helps with that self-compassion piece. I know I was talking to someone this weekend about the self-compassion. And I'm not, I'm learning to be better about it because I feel like we are harder than, like we're harder on ourselves than we are on our friends. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm now, my new thing for happiness is like being my own best friend, right? So whenever I'm like having a panic attack, I'm like, well, you know what, Chianti, it's okay. You're bright. You, you're smart. You can do this. You can figure this out. Like kind of that positive self-talk and just being my own cheerleader or just, you know, when you wake up in the morning saying, you know, you look good today, you know, just little things that I would say to my friends and doing it for myself. So I think that self-compassion can help too, because I already feel better today. Like I was like, Ooh, that curl pattern is popping today. And I felt good like five minutes later, you know, it was just like just little things. <laughs> yeah. And I think you make a great point too. Like not every technique is going to work for every person. Like sometimes yeah, not in a space where gratitude is going to work, but affirmations mm-hmm. might work or exercise. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing. I think there's so many um, different things people can do and you really just have to figure out what works for you. So like everything, like you were saying, everything's not going to work for everybody, but the key is to keep trying different things to not say, well, gratitude doesn't work for me. So I ain't doing it, you know, just to keep trying different interventions or different tools and and tricks to figure out what does work for you. When you find something that works, you know, that works, do it. But Another thing um, that happens is I think they call it, and you guys are more probably more familiar with it because it's your field, but like the hedonic treadmill, like we get used to things. So like mm-hmm. mixing it up a bit, adding, you know, adding variety to your life so that you don't get used to those tools that you're using over a long period of time. Right. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a really, because I think sometimes then people, it becomes discouraging. The thing that mm-hmm. used to sort of help me move forward doesn't work. What's wrong with me is I think a lot of times where people go with it versus recognizing that, you know, like everything else in life, we need a little bit of variety. We need to switch it up. Yeah. Different things work during different sort of periods of your life or even just your week um, and, yeah. and being okay with that. That's yeah. And then you just point. get used to stuff. <laughs> you right. Know, you like, just do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think those are great tips. Erica, what would you add? What would I add in terms of tips to... Yeah, like what What do you do? I, I'm asking, but I feel like I already know what kinds of things you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am also into, I will say I'm in, into both gratitude and begrudgingly exercise. But yes, I do do <laughs> that begrudgingly. Um, I would say for me, one of the things that I work a lot with clients is is mindfulness practices and really mm-hmm. focusing on being present 
Um, and it's something that I'm constantly working on in myself because I'm not, some people just take to mindfulness like a duck to water. I am not that person. <laughs> I am either. To mindfulness who then do it much better, like much faster. They get the hang of it than I have. But I do find like that important, like not trying to, you know, they talk about sort of living in the past or living in the future, like trying to really focus on being present with what's happening right now in the moment. That's a big, that's a big thing that I'm, is always a work in progress for me. Mm -hmm. What about you, Esther? (laughs) Oh, I thought I was getting out of it. Um, No. Yeah, Esther, I want to hear yours. (laughs) So I would say, I would agree, um, actually with both of you, um, exercise is one of those things that once I get out of it, um, it is a long and bitter road back to a regular exercise. But when I'm in it, it's fantastic. Like it, it actually is very helpful. But um, for me, I, you know, I like a lazy girl's way out of everything. So like, so even things like gratitude, like I'm not good at journaling, but like gratitude for me will be like, it could be a post-it like, or I will make a point of thinking about, you know, like who are the people? I'm definitely a very social person in terms mm-hmm. of like my sense of happiness and, and contentedness. So who am I thankful for? And like, we'll make a point to just send a text message to like one of my friends or a family mm-hmm. member or, mm-hmm. and like for me, hopefully it's nice for them because like I have eventually finally remembered to call them. But for me, it's also an act of gratitude. Like it's me kind of paying attention to like, oh no, I really even if I haven't talked to you in like three weeks, I'm thankful for that mm-hmm. person in my life and let me contact them. And then the rest of it for me is like, I feel like I said this on another episode too, but music is big. I have like a gazillion various playlists for depending on my mood and what I need to get done. <laughs> um, so that that's a really big one for me. And then um, my environment is big. So yeah, I'm big on, you know, and for me, it's a little bit about sort of knowing yourself, which I think is part of what you've talked about too, Chianti, is that sense of you got to know what helps you. And so, yeah. you know, it is like, I mean, the right throw pillows can like make the rest of my month great. They really can. <laughs> or like, yeah, yeah flowers from the grocery Charlie store. Wilson song. I'm, I'm music too. I didn't mention it, but I love music, especially Charlie Wilson. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're it's yeah. to piggyback off, you know, little things like whenever Esther brings like flowers into the office, it's always like it's always like a little pick me up. I can't get it together to actually bring flowers myself, but I appreciate <laughs> it when Esther does. Yeah. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. good. And like and for me that I feel good every time I show up, but it also is sort of like an added bonus because I feel like everybody who works in the office gets that little extra like nice thing. So like it's in some ways it's a very selfish act. I mean, it makes that everybody else feeling good makes me feel good too. Yep. And that's awesome. Hey, I think I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I do too. I love it. Well, I, it's kind of like, did I, have I said this on the podcast or maybe I just said this to you, Esther, there's this quote that's like, Kindness doesn't cost a damn thing. Spread that shit everywhere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> t-shirt yes. made. Yes. Need everyone needs on a t-shirt. <laughs> t-shirt. I love it. I love it. Uh, that's, but it is, I mean, it really should be on t-shirts. Like we should have like happiness Fridays and everyone needs to put that on a t-shirt. Like it's such an easy thing and everybody feels better. And I think we forget that despite 
some yeah. of our like, you know, negative social media, like trolling where we're like, oh, I can't stand following. Like the truth is that <laughs> when we're face to face with somebody and they're in a good mood and they're doing something and they're kind of being happy and positive, it is contagious. It makes you feel better. Smiling is contagious. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree. Well, Kianti, thank you so much for joining us um, and sharing some of your happiness secrets with us. I love that. Um, I enjoyed it. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're so glad that you could um, make it. So if people would like to find out more about Kianti and her services, read her blog. She's got lots of really good blog posts up there. You can visit her at KiantiLomax.com. You can also find her on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Chianti Lomax. I love it because she keeps it really simple. Um, mm-hmm. And we will be sure to also include links in this episode's notes so you can go to the show notes and find uh, some links to her stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks for having me, Esther. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Chianti, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So that was a really great discussion. And not at all superficial. Not at all. Turns out happiness is a lot deeper than maybe we give it credit for. Absolutely. Um, I really liked the part that she talked about um, with happiness being a social connection. That's something that we see in the research, you know, as couple and family therapies, we try to pay attention to that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> that our connections to people, that element is a big part of what makes us happy in our lives. And when that is missing, we don't do very well um, when we are missing those connections. I think we've talked about before, certainly with each other, if not on the podcast, you know, one of the worrying things for therapists is when somebody doesn't have strong social connections. Like that's always something you want to encourage clients to be working on because we know the benefits are so far reaching to have people that you feel connected to, that you feel you matter to them and they matter to you um, is preventative in a lot of ways in both your physical health and also your mental and emotional health in terms of issues coming up. It really is. And I, I will say, I think sometimes we just in general, as people, we blur that line between the idea that social connection is important for our, our happiness and that the people we love are supposed to make us happy. Hmm. And those are really sort of two different things. It's, right the existence of these connections contributes to our sense of happiness and contentment in life in a way that that's not the same as, oh, you know, my boyfriend's supposed to make me happy or my kids are supposed to do things are not supposed to upset me, but it's not quite that cut and dry. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a having those connections Sorry, I've sort of switched gears mid-thought. Having those connections, um, you know, is a major part in our happiness, but they don't. It's not sort of like a day-to-day. My husband fills me with joy, like just by his very existence, I am then filled with joy. I mean, sometimes, but not not every day. Not every day. Certainly not every minute of every day. All right. Well, sometimes I do feel joyous when I see him, but you know. One would hope. <laughs> One would hope. It's a good sometimes. sign. It's a good sign for the marriage if that happens. Right. From time to time. But yeah, I, I just think it's such an interesting dynamic. And we sort of talked about, you know, this idea too of like 
having some practices, some habits that facilitate happiness. And then really to me, like the social connection is, and then having people to share that with. And we share all of our, the wide range of our emotional experience with those people, but that we do really need to have people with whom we can share joy. Like, I think that also really increases our sense of happiness, just general happiness in life is we can share it, which of course maybe makes me think about sort of, as we talked about the Facebook piece, you know, where she was talking, you know, Keontae was talking about that. Sometimes people hate on other people's happiness and, which is, we're missing, you're missing the whole point. Join in that happiness. And it, there's actually some new studies that are coming out that are saying that that actually can make you happier. Mm-hmm. Right. Like having those social connection, actually using those social networks yeah. can make you happier. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's been a big problem with a lot of this technology. The way people talk about this technology has been so negative that it's like you don't even recognize the positive possibilities mm-hmm. or the positive uses that are already happening. You know, if you have somebody who, Maybe you have someone who's um, socially isolated, but they have found a community of people that they could reach out to or someone who can't, you know, physically go connect with other people. Maybe they have a significant disability and, you know, the interblogs, as we like to say, or the social networks (laughs) um, allow them to reach out and have those relationships. I've always been sort of a big proponent of all of this technology, both the social networks and otherwise, it's all about what we do with it. And it it in and of itself is not evil. No, we can do evil things with it and we can do great things with it, but we can't give all of our power and concede all of the responsibility to the technology as if it is controlling us rather than, rather than we controlling it. Yes. And I, I do feel like we have sort of as a culture and maybe you know, we talked about sort of that millennial versus those of us who are older than millennial uh, dynamic. You're still technically a millennial. I I am. Like I make, I you read an article and I make the cutoff barely, but I make it. Yeah. Um, I'm like, you know, I'm the wise old lady <laughs> of the millennial generation. I mean, I don't even feel like a millennial. And I mean, we're not that far apart in age. You're a couple years older than I am. No, but you are squarely within that millennial generation. And I do not feel like it at all. But I think there is this idea, to your point about social media, where we sort of treat it as this very superficial, um, shallow, kind of narcissistic thing. Like, you know, I will periodically meet people and they're like, oh, I'm not on Facebook. Like, as if somehow that makes you a better person. Superior. Because you're not on Facebook. (laughs) No. And I'm not saying you need to be if you don't want to be. That's perfectly fine. But- as you said, it's just a tool and what you choose to do with it. And I think we discount sometimes I think in fear of how other people will perceive us Mm -hmm. some of the value. Like I wrote an article a while ago about the idea, um, which I was really prompted by someone else's article of the idea of selfies as part of Mm self-care, you know, and I mean, I'm right there with everybody else kind of cracking jokes about, you know, selfies and I see, you know, like my kids and other people. And it's funny because I'll be like, oh, take a, I'm going to take a selfie and they make fun of me if I do it. And so there is this weird dynamic where we sort of treat it as this very narcissistic. I want people to look at me, mm-hmm. but I also think there's this other piece of, I want people to see me. Right. And that's different. And I think in some ways that's true across the board and it, on Facebook and on Twitter is 
maybe people are faking it. They're faking these like sort of pretty perfect lives. And there certainly is a, a darker flip side to that. Sure. But there's also some value sometimes in going, I, I want to post really positive, upbeat things. And even though I'm not feeling upbeat at the moment, maybe I'm going to go out of my way to find something positive to share because I know other people will like that if I do it. Right. And in that process, I create a little bit more happiness in my day. Right. And maybe I am just happy or maybe I am just proud. Like That's you know, also I, possible. Right. Like if I post a selfie and I, I don't do this that often, but I do sometimes where I post a selfie, like I just went to the gym or I went for a run or whatever. Like I feel proud of myself that I worked out, which I don't particularly like <laughs> doing, but I do. And you know, I want to share that, like, cause I yeah. feel good about it and other people like it and they cheer me on, which encourages me to keep doing it. And, you know, kind of keeps that momentum going. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, sort of tapping into your network of people to say, Hey, like, look at the stuff I'm doing, yeah. you know, look at the cool stuff I'm doing, look at, you know, I can get support from them. I can get sort of resources from them. Mm -hmm. um, and you become a resource and a support to people who you might not recognize, realize are in need of that or any of those kinds of things is we do live really busy lives. And so it is a way of sort of extending our network in a meaningful, purposeful kind of way that, you know, you're proud of yourself, but it's also motivation for somebody else who hates going to the gym, who's like, oh, well... Erica went, maybe I should go. And it becomes this, you get encouraged, but you also encourage other people. And I mean, I think Absolutely. if that's not a recipe for happiness, I don't know what is. Right. Like I've definitely seen people, they went to the gym and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go, going to go. Because <laughs> it's just, you know, there's other people out there yeah. trying to do the same thing you're trying to do. And it makes you feel more motivated, more encouraged. You know, I think um, you and I had talked about this a little bit off air, but when people sort of say like, I hate Facebook, everything is so fake. Everybody's just posting all these positive things all the time. I, I always want to say, maybe that's a moment to take a look at your own life and see what's happening in your own life that you're having such a negative reaction to that. Mm -hmm. Not that you don't believe me. I've definitely made fun of things people have posted <laughs> on Facebook. We've all been there. We've all, all been there. Like I'm not, you know, some angel or whatever, but I think if you find that your response to it is so often negative or so often sort of like, oh, I hate this person, like that might be a moment to look at your own life and see if you're feeling satisfied and fulfilled in your own life. Because if you are, you're typically not going to have such a negative reaction to all the sort of like positive self-promotion like you might sort of see it and be annoyed but you'll just go on about your day right but when you're having like a significantly negative reaction to it i think that's something to think about what's really going on here why is that why is that happening why am i feeling this way um towards somebody saying like i went to the gym or right. you know <laughs> like i should be you know i'm playing in that. the pumpkin patch with my kid like what i okay. Like, yeah, that's cool. I don't know why I would feel negative about that. Yeah. I think it's certainly reasonable to be neutral, but I think you're right. Like if you're having kind of a strong negative reaction to someone else's clearly positive post, then I think it is a good time to sort of check in like, well, what is that about for me? Right. Um, and what does that mean in my life? Why am I so unhappy with other people's happiness. Yeah. With real or fake. It does, I mean, on some level, it doesn't really matter. 
And if you think it's fake, why are you so invested in it? And it's a little different if it's somebody who's really close to you and like, you know, that they're, you know, crying every night, but every day, every morning they get up and they post these like really happy pictures. Right. Then that might just be time for an offline conversation. Like you need to reach out to that person, which comes back around to that full circle of social connection. Exactly. We need to have it everywhere. I think in our lives. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Which actually, I don't know if this is a great segue or not, but it definitely makes me think about um, my RLW for this episode. I am both reading and listening to, because it's an audiobook, <laughs> uh, Rising Strong from Brene Brown, which is her newest book. I have, I definitely have a big therapist crush, girl crush whatever we want to call it sure. on her. Like I love, I love her Ted talk. I love to see her on Oprah. I love all of her books. She's like um, the therapist darling. Like you can't say Brene Brown's name to another therapist without them melting on the floor in a puddle at your feet. Essentially, I know. She, like, she just, we love her. We do. You can't help me. And I think because she's partly because her research is qualitative. I think she's done such a nice job of melding kind of the real world application Mm-hmm. If you're a therapist in practice, it really is about the story because you're engaged. It's not about statistics. Right. But she's really. Those are important, but we need something to bring it back in a tangible yes, way to our exactly. clients. And she really sort of marries that storytelling piece with actual research about what matters and how people really ultimately are resilient. How do we do function our best, bounce back from life's challenges, all of that stuff. So. I really, I am not done, but I really like it. And I will say for all of my gushing about how much I love her, I will say like, once you've started to read her stuff, probably my favorite book is The Gifts of Imperfection. There are definitely some stories that repeat themselves. Okay. You know, there's some stories in The Gifts of Imperfection that are also in Daring Greatly, that are also in The Power of Vulnerability that, you know, and so I think if you are a huge fan and have like consumed all of her stuff, all of her talks and all of her recordings and all of her books, there are some pieces where you go, okay, I've already heard that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do so far feel like rising strong. Yes. There are some of those similar stories, but then there's this other depth of like, really like how does the rubber meet the road? Like I get it. I need to be more vulnerable. I need to embrace creativity and play and own my story. How do I actually do that? And I think almost more importantly, she really works at answering the question. So I, once you start to do that, you are going to fall flat on your face. Like there are, that's just part of being more vulnerable in Mm -hmm. your life. And so she really starts to tackle the like, so how do you get up and continue on that journey? And I think that's really what people, you know, that's all like nice and good to say, like, own your difficult story and your tough feelings and find the right people to share it with. And what happens when I do all of that and feel shame or rejected, or I feel like I failed and I don't want to do it anymore because this is terrible. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Because this is awful. Yeah. And so she actually, she shares like some personal stories and, and really kind of begins to create a framework for like, this is vulnerability is the key to a, a happier life, honestly. Um, I think in Rising Strong, she's really talking about, so like, here's how you keep at it. Gotcha. And, and, and bounce back and how, here's how you really become resilient because resiliency is it's in the bouncing back. 
Right. I mean, vulnerability means taking a risk. Right. It is inescapable that you're not going to take risk if you are going to be vulnerable. Like, otherwise you wouldn't be vulnerable. That would not fit with the definition of vulnerability. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you, I think there's kind of knowing when and where you can be vulnerable, Mm -hmm. I think is part of it. And then also, like you said, sort of figuring out how to keep bouncing back and being able to keep coming to a vulnerable place, Yeah, you know, in the right um, situations. Yes. Like, I don't think you need to be vulnerable with everybody. No, which I think is people on the street. Yeah, I I, probably there's lots of really great quotes from her. But I think the one that always sticks with me, which I don't know, is necessarily everyone else's favorite is, you know, you tell your story to people who've earned the right to hear your story. Yes. And I think that's a really important piece that when you're on that path to how can I be more vulnerable and how can I be more expressive about my emotional experience and, and my fears and my imperfections that has to become the mantra. Like, what does it look like to earn the right to hear my most intimate story for me to really be vulnerable? Cause we got to pick carefully. Yeah. 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 So sounds, that's my, that yeah. sounds really good. Mm-hmm. That's my RLW. Nice. So do you have a therapist problem for us this week? So I do have a therapist problem and it is essentially, well, I'm going to tell this the story basically, and then kind of frame the problem. <laughs> Um, so about, I guess it was about two years ago now, maybe two or three years ago. Um, not very long after I moved to DC because when you live in DC, like actually in the district, um, you get called for jury duty all the time. Like everybody gets called for jury all the time. Really? Yeah. Cause there's a lot of crime and there's not a lot of people. I guess that makes so, sense. <laughs> that makes you a lot get of sense. For jury duty all the I time. Just, you're, you're yeah. there for like a year and they're like, all right. Jury duty. You're on. You're up. Really? So both me and my husband have been called multiple times and we've lived there. We've lived in the district uh, four years. I think. Really? Yeah. I have lived in this area 16 years. I've been called for jury duty once. Yeah. Not if you move to DC. If you go over that border, <laughs> you're going to be called all, all the, the time. time. I, I begged out of it last year because I had been called within the past year. Really? Yes. Yeah, that's a lot of jury duty. It's crazy. So that aside, um, I was called for jury duty and I ended up serving on the jury, um, which was a really interesting and cool civic experience, actually. Um, But one of the things that happened was I had mentioned to someone that I was a, a couple and family therapist. And when it came time to elect the foreman for the jury... I was immediately elected the foreman Mm -hmm. because everybody was like, well, you can handle this. Like you can handle this. And I was like, I was, I was one of the youngest people on the jury. (laughs) And, um, it was always a little, like, of course I sort of was like, yeah, I can handle this. And I did. And it was fine. Like it it ended up being totally fine. But of course I was nervous because I was just like, I don't know what, their what expectations <laughs> for me are going to be like that. I'm going to, yeah, you're a therapist, you have superpowers and that means apparently. That, yeah. Well, there's a weird kind of thing as a therapist. And I don't know if you have felt this, but I definitely have that people either think therapists are like useless. Like there's no point in going to a therapist ever, which I don't usually get to talk to those people because obviously why would they be talking to me? Right. But these are things that I hear from other people who Mm -hmm. have those family members and those friends um, and probably family members who are saying these things behind my back Um, (laughs) and possibly friends. Um, 
like therapists are useless or like, well, you have the power to fix this problem. Like you have the power to fix every problem, right? You have the power to fix yes. like every family and couple problems. You can fix those because you're a therapist. Like yeah. really any no, problem involving people, right? You can fix that. <laughs> you can fix that. So there's no in between. Like either we are useless or we're like, I don't know, gods. I'm not sure. It's what very, people expect. I don't know either. And the thing that I think is actually common among both groups, because I have in fact been on a couple of like, I think both times on airplanes actually <laughs> stuck next to people who fall into the like therapists are useless camp. Oh, but they're next to me. And so now they've engaged me in this conversation and I don't have any desire. Like if you think it's a useless profession, like I have no desire to change your mind. Right. I just don't. It's not worth engaging. No. And, and that's not my job. And we're on a plane and you know, you're entitled Eat to the feel the way you want. But both times they wanted to talk to me. And what I walked away both times thinking was they seem to think that I have the same superpower that people who are like, oh, you're a therapist, therefore you can solve everything. Like it almost was like, you're useless. But more than that, I'm a little afraid that you do have these powers that can somehow get inside my head (laughs) and dig up feelings that I've like buried away (laughs) and that you are somehow going to fix control. Like, like I have, like you have mind control or something. That's not what happens. No. When you go to class, I've never mind controlled my clients. I don't think I have. No, like that's not a class. (laughs) It'd be easier. I think I could mind control them. This would be the easiest job ever, but that's not how it works. Jedi mind tricks are not what we were taught in our program. No, no. No Jedi mind tricks? Yeah, maybe there's some sort of like Star Wars grad school that we are missing. I, we need to look it up. No, but I definitely, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think it's, it is an interesting phenomenon. And then I start to think like, what other professions have similar experiences? Like if you're, I don't know. I guess doctors probably do have similar. I would think so. Like you're a cardiologist and I want you to like look at a rash on my like ankle. Like, yes. That's not your area of expertise. Why would you help me with that? Right. <laughs> but you kind of want to ask them anyway. Right. You're like, well, close enough. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, I, I had, uh, I have carpal tunnel and I have a friend who's a sports medicine doctor. And I was like, this is in my head. I'm like, this is so in your bailiwick. I could just ask you to just take a look at it. But no, of course I didn't. Cause I know. <laughs> No, no professional wants to be asked to do something professional at a holiday party. Yeah, so, no. The very least, okay. you need to like take them out for lunch or something. Right. Let them get a free meal out of the process. Free meal. Now look at my wrist. What do you think I should do with this? Yeah, no. Go ahead and order an appetizer. Yeah. Whatever you waiting. Want. How does this? <laughs> I don't think it's supposed to move this way, is it? <laughs> but I also think things like so, particularly my husband's family. He's got several cousins who are in like technology. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like myself included, like not only have I asked for help, but like I have as recently as this past Thanksgiving asked them to help with like a friend's computer. <laughs> now, in the case of this one particular cousin, that actually is in fact what he does. He's amazing at it and you know, is worth his weight in gold because he helped save like literally 13,000 photos. So it was like this big deal. But I do think like, how many places do you go where people just assume like you can fix their computer, their cell phone, their iPad there because this is like your field. This is it. You know how to fix everything, don't you? Or like, 
So I would be curious. I I would like it if people would just like tweet us or send us some emails or post on the Facebook page or something like. I'm in a field where. Yeah, where everyone just assumes that like your profession is basically a superpower. Right. That transcends like your individual area of expertise. Like that transcends like across different mediums, different. Right. Like things you wouldn't expect. Like I was an event planner. I never got that. I mean, people expect me to be able to plan events, but nobody thought I had any right super jedi get you a better deal on your space renal power like nobody thought that nobody thought you could do that no versus yeah like now i have mind control powers you do it's magical gosh i really should use my mind control powers more often (laughs) you should (laughs) it's so helpful (laughs) well we're gonna look into that and we'll see if we can get you some to like start using your mind control tricks Right. By the next episode, for sure. Obviously. Definitely. While we hopefully hear from you guys about what other things you have been asked to do based on your profession that really don't have to do with your profession. Yeah. Or that extend the boundaries like beyond what like if I had asked my friend to look at my wrist at the holiday party. It's like, it's not appropriate. (laughs) This is not a time for that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely do that. And if you have thoughts, like what else? I mean, we sort of perceive it as like people think we have sort of these super mind control powers. But what are your thoughts? Like, what do you think Think about about therapists? Like when you meet a therapist, what do you think is happening? Because I also we can talk about this again on another episode, like people who assume that we're always on. Right. Always analyzing. Or that we're crazy. That's a big assumption. That's another big assumption. Although I think that's a bigger assumption among therapists about other therapists. That's true. (laughs) We have our own internal (laughs) stereotypes about what it means to be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) So lots of good stuff for the next episode. As always, if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. You can... Check out old episodes and get more details on each of us at uh, estherboykin.com backslash podcast. Also on conversationsoffthecouch.com backslash podcast. Both places, pretty much the same information. Estherboykin.com has lots of stuff about me, mostly, obviously. Um, Conversations off the couch, however, especially if you are in the DC metro area, has lots of really good stuff. All of our fun events. I think we've said in another episode, it's basically this podcast in real life. Right. (laughs) Lots of opportunity (laughs) to come and hang out with us and talk to us and, and talk to lots of other really cool experts. So check out both sites. And you can find us on Twitter at EstherBMFT. And uh, at GTA Therapist. And take a look in the show notes if you want links to any of the fun things that we've talked about. And we will see you on the next episode. See you then.